Well, good morning. So glad you're with us this morning at South City Church. My name is Drew Klein. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, a couple of the other pastors uh, here are not here today. Um, Brother Jerry's down in, in Florida and uh, with his son. And then Pastor Elvis is in Texas, I believe, preaching this morning. So we need to be thinking about him as well. We're so glad that you're with us today. We've been in a series in the book of Galatians. Uh, of course, we know that Paul wrote the book of Galatians. It's the first letter that he writes, and he writes a lot of the New Testament, but it's the first one that he writes after his missionary journey uh, to this part of, of the world in Galatia. Um, it's called Faith and Freedom. And as we get into it, we begin to really get a sense of the fact that God wants us to be free. Paul is, is even going to speak to it in our text this morning that, that there's freedom in Christ, that we don't work and work and, and strive and strive to, to attain salvation. No, it's, it's given to us as a gift. And the freedom that comes along with that is absolutely wonderful and beautiful. And we need to understand it. And yet some of us, we're still working. We're still trying to earn something. And there's nothing to earn. It's given to us as a gift. So we've been in this, this series. This is our third message in the uh, Galatians series. Last week we talked about the fact that Paul kind of began to give us his testimony uh, we know that he wrote Galatians because there's a scandal going on in the churches of Galatia. Some, some brothers have come in, some false brothers have come into the churches of Galatia and even to the church in Antioch and even in the church in Jerusalem. This is an epidemic, if you will. And they're trying to say that the gospel is basically Jesus plus something else. Jesus plus circumcision. You see, the Jewish people were identified in the Old Testament, they were identified as God's people because of circumcision. So for them, this is a big deal. This is for a millennia, people have identified them as God's people because of circumcision. And you're saying we don't have to do that anymore? Like it just, they couldn't wrap that around their minds. And so Paul's writing this letter, this, this epidemic is going on, and these brothers trying to distort, he says, and reverse and, and disrupt what God is doing in the churches uh, of Galatia, Antioch, and Jerusalem, and, and all around. And so Paul is wanting to speak to these issues. And of course, last week we talked about the fact that uh, Paul's saying, listen, there's sort of a, an issue of credibility. Who's this Paul guy? Does he actually have credibility to speak what the gospel is? And so Paul is in his letter saying, I do have credibility. I'm an, I'm an apostle. It just means sent one. And so the capital A apostles have been sent by Jesus himself. And Paul's saying, I had a revelation from Jesus. And he sent me. Therefore, I'm a capital A apostle. And so he is explaining that. He's making a reference to this. He's still kind of on the witness stand, if you will, trying to prove his point. That yes, uh, I have credibility to speak this. And yes, this is the truth of the gospel. And he, he last week we were talking about his testimony. The fact that he said, listen, I used to be a persecutor of the church. I tried to destroy the church, and God in his grace changed my life, and now I'm preaching Christ, right? And he was even heard of. The churches in Judea didn't know who this Paul guy was, but they had heard about this guy who was going all around, and he was once a persecutor of the church, but now he's a preacher of the gospel. And the good news for us is that no matter who we've been, no matter what we've done, even things against God, even then... Jesus is enough to save our soul. Isn't that good news? Isn't that good news? That's good news. It's glorious news for someone like me who is a sinner, who is a broken man, who is, who is undeserving of anything God would give me and yet in his grace has saved me and wants to use me and he wants to do the same thing in your life. No matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, if he can do it in Paul's life, he can do it in ours. And we talked about the fact that as God does those works in our own lives, we bring him glory. That's the purpose of our life, to bring him glory. Well, Paul is still sort of on the witness stand, if you will. He begins to speak about the Jerusalem council that he goes to. And in essence, he's saying that the, the gospel has now sort of been put on trial. They go to this big council. Uh, it's made up of different people. It's made up of leaders of the church, other apostles. Uh, it's made up of uh, Paul and Barnabas. It's made up of the Judaizers, and they're having this big debate. And the pure, simple, true gospel of Jesus is now being put on trial. You know, sometimes trials can go one way or another, and they affect 
uh, things greatly, don't they? I was thinking about this. I was thinking about our country. The fact that there have been some, some cases and trials that have been very important to the shape of our country. Many of which, we didn't do a very good job. Many of which some bad decisions were made. One happened in uh, 1857, Dred Scott versus Sanford. Supreme Court decided that somehow, I'm not sure how they came to this conclusion, but somehow they, they said that slave owners could own slaves and that would be their property. That a man could own another man. That a man could be property of another man. The Supreme Court said. It was a horrible decision and ultimately it began to lead to the Civil War where 620,000 people were killed. It's a bad decision. It led to bad things. Things started leaning in the right direction. 1875, the Civil Rights Act said that if you treat anyone because of their race uh, differently, that's a criminal act. Yet it took another 75 years from then to have, uh, in 1954, Brown versus the Board of Education, which began to lay the groundwork for the civil rights movement and, and inclusion into schools and, and uh, integration around the country. So those are better decisions. They're going in the right direction, at least. And then we get to 1973, and there's a court decision, Roe v. Wade. And we begin to say as a country that we don't value babies that are still in the womb. And that murderous decision has cost the lives of over 60 million babies in our country. See, bad decisions can lead to really bad things. And I'm so thankful today. We sit here today. In part, what we believe today, in part, how, uh, in a huge part, what we hold to true and dear to our souls and the theology that we believe and walk out because this decision in the Jerusalem Council was made to honor the fact that salvation is by faith in Jesus alone, in his grace alone. Amen? That was what was decided. We don't work for it. We don't add circumcision to it. We don't add a, a lifestyle of Ju Judaism to have it. No, Jesus gives us this gift free. Some of you are saying, hadn't he preached this message last week? Didn't he preach this message two weeks ago? Yeah, and I'm doing it again today. You know why? It's so important that we know the truth of God's word, the pure, simple, gifted gift of grace, the salvation of grace of Jesus. And so we're kind of in part B of what Paul is defending from verses 13 in chapter 1 all the way up through verse 10. Paul is still defending who he is and why he said what he said and why we need to value the truth of this beautiful grace and gospel that he's given to us. Galatians 2, 1 through 10, would you look in your word with me? And we'll read our text today. It says, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because the false brothers secretly, secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they, make, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me uh, from mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas, that's Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they ask us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Would you pray with me as we look at this text this morning? Father God, we thank you for your word. Oh God, how grateful we are for your word. It is life to us, God. The greatest thing we will do today is to open this word. To open our hearts, Lord, to what you want to speak to us through this word. Lord, to redirect our lives to be obedient to this word. And God, I pray with all of my heart 
that in your grace and your mercy, you would anoint me and direct me now to preach this word. That it not be mine, but it be yours. And God, that you would move us and change us as a result of it. In Jesus' precious name, and God's people said, amen. You know, it's hard for me sometimes when I think about all the timelines. It seems like we, he's throwing out a few of these dates in the last couple of Sundays. Uh, three years here, 14 years here, this here. It, it, it's easy to get a little confused. And so I thought it might help us to take a look at a little bit of a timeline of Paul's ministry, Paul's life in Christ. So I want us to look at that. The first thing he says in the very first verse is, then after 14 years, I went up uh, to Jerusalem with Barnabas. After 14 years uh, again. So what he's saying in in chapter 1 is that he had gone up to Jerusalem, right? So just give you a timeline. So about 33 to 35, theologians believe, is when Paul was knocked down on the ground by this amazing blinding light of the revelation of Jesus. Jesus shows up. Paul's life is never the same again, right? His mind is blown. His life is changed. He is transformed in the grace and goodness of who Jesus really is. And so in that moment, he's changed. Uh, he goes, remember he, had, he was literally blinded with scales over his eyes. And he's now uh, gets over to this man's house. Ananias comes, prays over him, the scales fall. He begins to see literally, <laughs> physically, and figuratively. He begins to see the truth of who God is. And the Bible says he begins immediately to preach in the synagogues. And then he, he goes away to Arabia, right? He says he goes away to Arabia and comes back to Damascus. He does that for three years, say 34 through 37 A.D., somewhere around there. In those three years, God is preparing Paul for ministry, just as he did the other apostles for three years. So who knows what's happening in those times? I wish, I wish we knew more information about that three-year period. We just don't know. But I'm confident that Jesus is continuing to reveal himself to Paul over and over again. He's learning uh, of this gospel that, that, that he's giving to Paul. We see that he comes back to Damascus. He begins to preach. And then the, the Jewish people, uh, Jewish leaders in Damascus want to kill him. So they're watching for him in the gate. And they have to lead him, uh, let him down in a basket. He escapes from Damascus, goes to Jerusalem for the first time. Okay? This is about 37 A.D. or so. Uh, He's only there for 15 days. He spends time with Peter for two weeks um, and gets to see James as well. Well, same thing that always happens to Paul. Some people want to kill him. He's preaching in synagogues and different places. People want to kill him. So the brothers take Paul and they take him down to Caesarea. And then from Caesarea, they're going to send him home to Cilicia in a place that he grew up in called Tarsus. And that's for his own safety. You You need to go back there. And from what we know, he was there for 9, 10, 11, we're not sure, 9 or 10 years. Say 37 to 46, he's in Tarsus. He's there for his own safety. But I promise you, knowing Paul <laughs> through, his, through his letters, he's also establishing the church and making disciples. That's what he's called to do, and I'm confident that's what he was doing. About 46, we remember that the church of Jerusalem hears that something's going on in Antioch, in the church of Antioch. And so they send this brother, Barnabas, this, this son of encouragement. He's an encourager. He, he's a builder. He's, he's a good guy. They're going to send him to Antioch to find out what's going on. Well, he gets there. He starts preaching. He starts making disciples. He starts doing the work of ministry there. And he realizes, these are all Gentiles, and this is not an easy work, and I need help. And so he then leaves Antioch and goes to Tarsus to find Saul who had been called to the Gentiles. He's thinking, if anybody can do this, it's the guy God has set apart to the Gentiles, Saul. So I'm going to go get Saul in Tarsus. He finds him, brings him back to Antioch, and they begin to pastor and minister and disciple people in Antioch. And God's doing amazing work in Antioch. And remember, it was in Antioch that they were first called Christians. They had an identity as people of Jesus. And then it was in Antioch where the leaders were praying and and seeking the Lord and worshiping. And it was in that moment that the Holy Spirit said, send out Paul and Barnabas for the work of mission. And so it's, it's, it's from Antioch that they go on the first missionary journey. Around 47 or 48. They do that for a couple of years. They travel uh, from Antioch over to the island of Cyprus and into southern Galatia. And they minister in Antioch, Pisidia. They minister in Iconium and, and Lystra and Derby, And then they go back to Antioch in Syria, 1,200 miles later. 
And so when they're back in Antioch, and they begin to realize that something's taking place. There are some people who are following the Apostle Paul on his missionary journey. It's not like a good following, right? It's not like the Beatles kind of following wherever they go in concert. That's not, it's not that kind of a thing. It's a negative situation. These people called the Judaizers are following the Apostle Paul wherever he goes and trying to undo what he's done. As he preaches the gospel of Jesus, this free gift of salvation given to us, it's not something we earn. They're coming along behind him saying, oh, no, no, no. See, we're from Jerusalem. That's where the real apostles are, right? That's where the real, the the apostles that traveled with Jesus, I'm talking Peter, James, John, you know, those guys. That's where we're from. We're from that area, from that, that church. And yet you need to be circumcised if you're going to be saved. You need to follow the law and rule of Moses if you're going to be saved. And they're undoing, literally Paul says, reversing this gospel that I've given to you. Who, who, they're saying, who's this Paul character? He's from what? Tarsus. Where's that? Right? We're from Jerusalem. Come on. Who are you going to believe? Paul hears of this scandal. And he's now upset about it. Right? And so he, he also has this experience of the Jerusalem council. And he writes to the Galatians. And that's why we have this wonderful book to help make some things clear. Now, there is a little bit of an interesting, small um, conversation theologically going on here. And it's really of lesser consequence, but I'm going to go ahead and address it. And that is, Paul says this is his second trip. Paul says that I go up again to Jerusalem uh, 14 years later. Well, if we read in Acts 11, there's a story about how there's uh, somebody who comes from Jerusalem. His name is Agabus, and he's a prophet. And he says there's going to be a famine in, in Judea. And so the Antioch church gathers resources and things together, and it says they send Paul and Barnabas to the Jerusalem church to take these goods, these resources, right? So is this his second or is it his third trip? We don't really know. But the reality is it's not like down the street, right? Like Antioch and Syria to Jerusalem is a major journey. And so there's a good chance that the trip to take uh, the gifts for, for the famine as well as the Jerusalem council are the same trip. It seems to make sense chronologically in what he's explaining here. Uh, so it could be either one of two things. Uh, Paul says this. Let's look at what he says. He says, then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation. So then the question is, whose revelation are we talking about? Are we talking about Agabus in chapter 11 of Acts? Or are we talking about Paul's revelation? Because Paul had all kinds of revelations. He had a revelation of Jesus in uh, Acts 9 on the road to Damascus. He, he, he talked about being away in Arabia for three years in Galatians 1. I'm sure there was lots of revelation there. He had revelations of Jesus in Acts 22 and Acts 23. Jesus literally showing up to Paul, encouraging him, giving him direction about his ministry. Isn't that amazing, by the way? Well, that's supernatural. That's incredible. Not only that, later on, he's going to write to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 12, and he's going to say, I boast of the fact that I have visions and revelations of Jesus. You know, the president has, I don't know what they call it, is it the white phone, the red phone? I don't know what, you know what I'm talking about, the phone, right? And, and, and he can, when it's an important call, the phone rings or whatever the case may be. Important people have these, these fancy phones. I remember uh, going to Graceland one time and seeing Elvis's jet and you go onto his jet and he's got a phone on his jet like an old dot. I'm like, how does that even work? I don't understand. But uh, important people have these phones. It's kind of like Paul had this one-way conversation, this two-way conversation with Jesus. And when Jesus wanted to reveal himself to Paul, he would do it. And we see that in his letters. It's incredible. But either way, whether it was Agabus's revelation or revelation to Paul, doesn't matter. He's going to Jerusalem, whether it's to take famine resources or because of this very important meeting uh, before the council. Either way, he goes because of a revelation. Look at verse 2. It says, I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. You know, here's the first main point I want to make to us this morning. Paul sat before them. Paul had an attitude of accountability, an attitude of of submission, an attitude of humility, a desire for unity. 
It's the same thing we saw in chapter 1 when he said he went to Jerusalem the first time, right? He went up to be with Paul and he saw James. You just get this sense of he's trying to connect. He's trying to be connected. He's not being a lone ranger on his own. He understands that the, the gospel is not just his gospel. It's Jesus' gospel and that the church is not just his church and the churches he plants. He needs to be connected. And there's a beauty in connectedness, isn't there? That's what we see, and that's who we ought to be as well. But Paul wanted to be humble. He wanted to be accountable. He wanted to be connected, and he wanted the churches to be unified. And so that's the reason he goes and sets before them this message. He says, this is the message that I preach. He, he does this before the leaders, which I think he's explaining in verse 9 to be Peter, James, and John. Okay? These are the leaders that he's making this private meeting with. Now, what's interesting here, he says, this is the gospel I proclaim. It's present tense. I proclaim this gospel right now. When I'm preaching in the synagogues, this is what I preach. Right now, this is the present tense. But what's interesting is Paul makes this statement that, that is very interesting to me. He says, uh, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. Now, when I first read that, I think, Paul, are you... This, this doesn't sound like Paul. Are you, are you getting permission from these guys? Are you making sure that you haven't been saying something that's not right? It just feels a little strange. I want to make sure I wasn't doing this wrong, is what it sounds like. But when you really begin to understand and know Paul, and you think about all the things that he showed us already, you go, that's not Paul. <laughs> right? Why do I know that? Well, Tim Keller says this. He says, it's not that he might have been preaching the wrong message for 14 years but rather that the apostles might cave to the Judaizers and thus undo his work so far. Paul's trip was not for fear that the Jerusalem apostles did not have the true gospel. What he did fear was that the Jerusalem apostles might not be true to that gospel. This is what's taking place. Paul is confident in his message of Jesus. He's making sure the apostles have got it right. I'm going, that sounds a little bit more like Paul, right? How do you know that? Well, let's look. Here's, here's the first reason. Paul had first-person access to Jesus himself, right? Where did Paul get his gospel from? Was it from another man? Was it from some tradition? No. It was from a resurrected Jesus. Remember, he said, I don't need man's approval. I want God's approval. Paul was preaching a confident gospel in who Jesus was because it came from Jesus himself. That alone is enough, right? But let me give you some other reasons. This is now 17 years of Paul preaching and doing ministry. Don't you think if he had some wavering question about whether he was right or wrong, maybe he would have gone to Jerusalem a little sooner just to make sure? He had no question. He had no doubt. He was preaching in the confidence of who Jesus made him to be and the message that Jesus had given him to give. What about this? In Galatians 1, he says, if I or somebody on my team or anyone else preaches to you a gospel different than the gospel I preached to you at first, they should be what? Cursed. It's now Paul in front of these, these apostles going, did I say it right? Have I preached it? No. Paul's going, I want to make sure you're preaching this right. I, I, I've been with Jesus. As you have, I want to make sure that we're together on this. Are you preaching this gospel, this free gift of Jesus, the way it should be preached? He wanted to make sure they were on the same page. Because listen, if they weren't on the same page, 17 years of ministry for Paul could be undone. He could just unravel. And now people think they can just, they, they can earn their salvation. They're going to bring some things to salvation. It would just undo what he has been doing for 17 years. It was very important. But he determines they're on the same page. And in fact, those apostles, they actually didn't change a thing about his message. Look in verse 3. Even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom uh, that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Here's the second thing I want you to see. Paul wants to preserve the gospel. This is the pastoral heart of Paul. 
He's saying what matters most is that we can preserve what matters for you, the Galatians. That's, we didn't even listen to these guys for a minute. Not even for a moment. What's interesting is he introduces this new character, Titus. We hadn't heard about Titus until now. Who is Titus? Why is Titus on this journey? Right? Well, I promise you there's a very good reason. And Paul is very intentional in who he invites on this journey. Titus is a Gentile. Titus is an uncircumcised Gentile. Titus is a believer in Jesus. Titus is a product of Paul's ministry to the Gentiles. So Paul goes, I'm going to take Titus. In fact, he calls him in in Titus chapter 1, Titus is my son in the faith or my child in the faith. In other words, Paul has no doubt of of the heart and the testimony of Titus. He knows who he is. And now Paul's going to march here, uncircumcised Greek uh, Gentile Titus in front of the council, which is very Jewish, in very Jewish Jerusalem, right? And he's going to hold him there and say, uh, this is not just a cognitive discussion or construct about theology, about it being a free gift. This is a real-life, breathing person who has accepted Jesus to be his Savior. Is he going to hell because he's not circumcised? See, ministry changes when it goes from uh, a theological construct to real people, doesn't it? Real people's souls, real people's lives. Ministry takes on a different perspective. Then it's not my opinion or your opinion or, or your interpretation. This is people who matter. And Paul has brought Titus as a test case. And he's standing him before the, 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 the council. And he's, he knows that, listen, if they force Titus to be circumcised, it's going to be proof that they don't understand the free gift of Jesus. It's risky. It's very provocative that Paul would bring in an uncircumcised Gentile into this Jerusalem council. Remember what the Jews used to call the uh, Gentiles? Gentile dogs. Jewish men would wake up in the morning and they would literally pray this prayer, God, thank you that I'm not a, a Gentile dog or a woman. I, it's not my, not my prayer. Don't be mad at me, ladies. That's just, that was their prayer. But that's what, he, that's what they would pray. That's the way they looked at these Gentiles. And so to bring this man into this very Jewish place was definitely making a point. It was definitely uh, getting the point across. Some of you say, well, yeah, what, what about Timothy? We, we studied the fact that this past summer, as we were going through the book of Acts, Timothy had to be circumcised. So why does Timothy have to be circumcised and not Titus? Well, Timothy was Jewish. His mother was Jewish. His father was Greek. And by Jewish law, if your mother's Jewish, then you're Jewish. And Paul wanted to use Timothy in his ministry. And so Paul said, I want to use you. Where does Paul go when he goes to New new Town? He goes to the synagogue, right? Timothy, because he was a Jew, because he wanted to go in the synagogue, needed to be circumcised. And so in his willingness to do that, he was able to do ministry among those people. Titus is not forced to be circumcised. It's a big deal. You know something else about the fact that Christianity, you don't have to be circumcised. You don't have to follow Jewish customs. You don't have to take on all these different things. I love this. What this says is that as Christians, God wants to circumcise our hearts, not our bodies. He wants to change us from the inside out. That's why in Revelation, it talks about the fact that people from every tribe, nation, and tongue will be celebrating a risen Savior, right? And they can, they can retain their cultures because it's not culture necessarily that, that God's trying to change. He's trying to change hearts. And so we can, we can keep the essence of the gospel when God changes hearts. We don't, and let me give you an example. If you, if you choose to be a Muslim and you're a woman, well, you're, they want you to wear a burqa. They want you to cover your head. They want you to eat things differently. They want you to pray multiple times a day. They, they want to change some different things about you. And yes, God changes us, right? But he changes us from a place of salvation, from the inside out, from a place of gratefulness, not a place of uh, trying to earn something, not a place of works. I need to do these things to be saved. No, that's not the gospel. That's the very thing Paul is trying to say. 
He's saying, when God saves you, even while you're yet sinners, in the middle of your brokenness, in the middle of your sin, in the middle of your addiction, in the middle of the things you don't understand, in the middle of you being an enemy of God, he saves you. And then when he saves you, you realize, how great is our God? How amazing is our God's grace? And now that he saved me, even though I'm so undeserving, and I bring nothing to this salvation, that in faith alone, in Jesus alone, by grace alone, I come to Christ, then Lord, may my life change. May the Holy Spirit in me now begin to help make me change and do the things you want me to do as a believer in Christ. Christianity is accepting anyone and everyone who is in Christ Jesus, regardless of their cultural or ethnic background. And we can adapt the gospel to different people while preserving its essence. So Paul mentions here these false brothers. And he mentions that they've been secretly brought in. And Acts, it says that these false brothers were actually Pharisees, right? We know the Pharisees are not good people. And he says they're false brothers, which is kind of confusing. They're not brothers, is what he's saying. These people don't know Christ. They're fake brothers. They're not brothers. And all they're trying to do is stir up trouble. By the way, that's what the enemy always tries to do, isn't it? That's who Judas was in, in the twelfth. It was Satan's attempt to stir up trouble. Satan is always placing false brothers, troublemakers. He's always placing them around the church to, to be divisive, to cause trouble. Um, and these false brothers were no different here in, in Jerusalem and in Galatia and in Antioch. Um, Satan always wants to counterfeit the truth, doesn't he? He always wants to, to offer something that seems good, better than what Christ is. I, you know, I remember um, a few years ago, I was in Nazareth, Jesus' hometown. And I was, it was my first night in Nazareth, and I was in a hotel, and we were asleep. It was about 3 o'clock in the morning or so. And I was awakened to what sounded like screams and, and very frightening. I sat up in the bed, terrified. And I kept listening, and I realized it was a Muslim call to prayer. It happens every night at that time, over loudspeakers. So in that part of the world, they set up loudspeakers outside, and they blast Muslim calls to prayer five times a day. It's quite different than America, and I was alarmed. I was shaken, and I could feel the evil in that prayer. I could feel the, the enemy in that. It was terrifying. You know, in uh, that part of the world, wherever Christians build a church, they put a church together and they have a cross at the top of their church, Muslims will come in and build a mosque right next door to that church. And they will set their minaret just a little bit higher than the cross. I saw it in many places, church, mosque, minaret just a little higher. What do you think they're trying to say? Right? What do you think the implication is? We're higher, we're better, we're over. And there's this sense in the same way that these false brothers have followed Paul around saying, no, he doesn't know what he's doing. Well, my question is this. He says they've been sent in. Who sent them in? Satan. Satan is the one who sends these fake brothers in. Jesus talked about them in Matthew 13. He tells a parable it's the parable of the wheat and the weeds. Remember that one? Jesus says there's a farmer. I'm just going to paraphrase it for us this morning. He says there's a farmer. And the farmer goes and sows good wheat seed into the ground. And his servants come back to him and the servants say, Master, the wheat is growing up, but there's weeds all in the wheat. Do you want us to go uh, pull up the weeds? And the farmer says, it must have been my enemy that has done this. Don't pull up the weeds. Let the wheat and the weeds grow up together. And when it's time for harvest, I'll send you out and you can gather it all together and separate the wheat from the weeds. And the disciples are like, what does this mean, Jesus? What does this mean? And Jesus says, those who are about my father's business, those who do good, those who love me, those who are obedient to me, they're the wheat. And those who are false brothers, those who are stirring up trouble, those who are against me, they're the weeds. And at harvest, at the end of the age, at the end of time, I'm going to send my angels, and he's going to separate those who've been mine and those who've been false. 
and the angels are going to throw the weeds, those false brothers, those people who have been against Christ, he's going to throw them in the fire. Very serious language. The same language Paul was giving in, in Galatians 1, that they would be accursed if they changed this gospel. Paul says they didn't listen to these false brothers even for a minute. They wanted to preserve the true gospel of Jesus, not only for their own lives, but for these Galatians. You know, I think it's important for us as a church, and every church, to major on the majors and minor on the minors. You ever heard that phrase? Major on the majors, minor on the minors. There's a lot of opinions about different things in Scripture. But we need to be faithful to major on the majors. What we see Paul doing here is saying, this is a major. The purity of the gospel that we don't add anything to, it's a big deal. We're going to fight for it. We're going to go to Jerusalem to make sure they get it too. (laughs) Make sure they understand it too. We're going to fight for this. We're not going to listen to people who are trying to move us in another direction. This is important. Well, minor on the minors, but we're going to major on the majors. Next thing we see is that Paul and Barnabas are approved by the other apostles for their ministry to the Gentiles. Look in verse 6. It says, And from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me, from mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. See, the one thing that the Judaizers were doing, they were following Paul around, they were making an identification connection to the other apostles in Jerusalem. Remember that? Hey, we're from Jerusalem. We're the Judaizers. You're going to go with the guys from Jerusalem with the other, the real apostles who spent time with Jesus or this guy, Paul, who's from Tarsus. Where's that? So this, this is a big deal that the apostles now give the right hand of fellowship to Paul and Barnabas because in doing that, they're denying the Judaizers. They're making a very distinct decision. They're making a separation. They're making a split. We're not going to add this. We're not going to add anything to salvation. We're going to agree with Paul. He's right. It's by faith alone. These pillars were James and and John and Peter. And it's so interesting because they didn't add one thing to Paul's message. Nothing. Paul said there was nothing that, that they needed to change about what I said. Now, isn't that amazing? Paul's been ministering for 17 years, 14 years since he went up to Jerusalem, and he goes up, and they're preaching and want to preach the same thing he's been preaching. That is only by the Spirit of God. You have to acknowledge the supernatural aspect of God's working. He's the author, isn't he? He's the one writing the story of the church. He's writing our story. It's his story. And so they're preaching the same gospel. It's incredible. They, they respect and appreciate and recognize that Paul has an apostolic ministry just like Peter, right? In other words, so Paul's ministry is different than Peter's. Paul's going to the Gentiles. Peter's going to the Jews. But they preach the same Jesus. They preach the same message. It can be different. It can go to different focuses, but it's the same Jesus. That's so important for us to understand and realize as well. They gave the right hand of fellowship, so they were approved, Right? By the way, Paul said in verse in chapter 1 at the end, I'm not looking for man's approval. He didn't need to be approved by the apostles, but they gave it to him. You're preaching what we preach. We believe the same thing. We're unified in this. We're together in this. You know, I, I, I was convicted in that this, this week. I was thinking, I need to be a better team player. And, and I think we as a church, we need to do better at being team players. This is what I mean. If there, and there's, you know, there's a lot of churches that are playing up popping up all over uh, Saline County, all over Little Rock, all, not as many out here, but all over different places, West Little Rock, church plants, church plants. Praise God. That, uh, that's a good thing, right? I remember when, when Lori and I planted a little church in Franklin, Tennessee, I was so worried because Franklin, Tennessee, is you can just kind of like take a rock and throw it and you will hit a church, right? 
And uh, so I had a, a, a friend acquaintance that I, that I spent some time with, and I called him. He's a church planning guru, Ed Stetzer. And I said, hey, it's Franklin, Tennessee. I don't know that Franklin needs another church, but I feel called to do this church here. He goes, well, you're right. Franklin's got a bunch of churches. He said, but, he said, Drew, until every soul in Williamson County knows Jesus Christ as their Savior, we need another church. Until every soul knows Jesus, we need another church planter. And that, that helped me not worry about what somebody else was doing. I knew what God was calling me to do. And so I want to be a better team player with these church plants. As long as the, we major on the majors, right? They're preaching Jesus crucified, that it's through him and faith alone and by his grace, then we're on the same team. And we can celebrate what God is doing through them. And until every soul in Arkansas, in every soul in central Arkansas, in southwest Little Rock knows Jesus, we need another church. And so we as a church want to plant churches. And by God's grace, we will in his time and his provision. Here's the last point I want to make this morning on our text. It's the only requirement that they give Paul. Paul's wondering if they're going to make all these changes. Well, I didn't like this. So you said this kind of funny. Nothing happened. They didn't change anything. They added nothing to Paul's message. But at the very end, verse 10, it says, Only they ask us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Paul says, that's something I'm already passionate about. In fact, it could be that they are in Jerusalem because of their compassion for the poor. It could be that they're there bringing these resources from the Antioch church for the poor during the famine. And just as I was thinking about this, I kept thinking, you know, we did the book of James last spring. And I couldn't help but think about Pastor James. He loved the poor, doesn't he? And when we, re we read his, his letter, he loved the poor. James 1.27, don't forget the orphans and the widows, right? Don't forget those most vulnerable, those most marginalized. Care for them. James chapter 2, don't treat somebody who's rich or poor any differently. Treat them the same. Remember that from Pastor James? Or chapter 5 where he says, care for the elderly and care for the sick, most of likely who were poor. And he also says in chapter 5, if you run a business, if you employ people, treat them with respect. People who are under you, people most likely who were poor. I just wonder if it was Pastor James that said, oh, by the way, hey, would you remember the poor? What, what, what is important about this that we as a church need to know is that these are, these are two areas of churches. The same church, Jerusalem, Antioch, the Church of Jesus, but they're two locations. One thing is a distinctive, let's remember the poor. You know what that means? South City Church should remember the poor. That's what it means. Every church of Jesus should care for the poor. That's what it means. Do we get this from James? No, we get it from Jesus. Do you remember what Jesus did and what he said? Jesus loved the poor. In fact, Paul says in Philippians that Jesus incarnationally came to this earth. He emptied himself. He took on the form of a servant. And he even makes it more succinct in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, when he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. It's important to Jesus. He himself became poverty so that we could know the riches of heaven. So that we could have the inheritance of salvation. He made himself poor. He identifies with the poor. It's important to the early church because they created a, a position to care for the poor. Acts 6, make sure that the, uh, the, or, the orphans, make sure that the widows are being cared for. They created a position, the deacons. To serve the poor. And if that's, a, if that's a position that even Paul gives clarification and qualifications to, it's important for the church to care for the poor. Can I just tell you I'm proud of at least our vision for what we want to do with the poor. You already know that we do a food pantry and a clothes closet. Um, by the way, just a little side note here. We need some men's clothes for the clothes closet as we're going into winter. Coats, sweaters, sweatshirts, um, all that kind of stuff we need if you have some you want to bring. 
we have those places. We have the food pantry of the close calls. Those are good things. But can I just tell you, we don't want to just give somebody a meal to take care of them for the next few days. Pat them on the back. Okay, see you next month, next two weeks. We don't want to do that. And I'm proud to say that we're partnering with the City Church uh, Network here in Central Arkansas, which Dee is the director of, uh, and, and Daryl is helping with that as well, to help come up with some vision and some plans to change generational poverty in Central Arkansas. We don't want to just put a Band-Aid on poverty. We want to say, let's fix this in the name of Jesus because it's the job of the church. Right? Jesus loved the poor, and therefore we should love the poor. And I'm proud of the fact that our church is moving in vision to make a difference in that area, in our neighborhood, in our community. So what does this say to us today as we close? What does this text mean for us? Well, here's a couple of things. Number one, we see Paul connected, accountable, submissive, uh, in unity with the church. Churches ought to be connected to each other. They ought to support one another. They ought to love one another. They ought to care for each other's needs in, in, in times of trouble. And as individuals, we ought to be connected to the church. Do you have a church home? Listen, I'm not talking about a place that you come for service every Sunday or once a month or whatever. No. I'm talking about do you have a family who loves you, who supports you, who holds you accountable, who challenges you, so that you can have the best that God has for your life, right? Not in any punitive way, but that loves you to lead you to the things that are best for your life. That's what a family is. Are you connected? Are you accountable? Are you submissive? Are you in unity with the church? If not, come be a part of our church or some church that is preaching the true gospel of Jesus. Here's the second thing. Paul not only had a revelation from Jesus, but he's preaching the same gospel as the apostles. It's a miracle. It's God. And that same gospel is this. Salvation is a gift. It's not something we earn. We don't add to it. We only receive it. It's important for us to say that over and over again until our working hearts receive it. I just say, sometimes we want people to have it all figured out when they walk in these doors. Right? Can you believe what she was wearing? Did you see how short his shorts were? Right? He smelled funny. Listen, Paul says, Christ died for us even while we were yet sinners. Our job is not to judge people when they come in here. Our job is to love people. And out of that love that they would change, that we would support, that we would care, that we would make them disciples. Let's not judge them on the front end. Let's just love them, can we? Not, not add something to salvation. So, oh, you need a better dress than that, honey. You need a shower, pal. No, just come in here and let's just grab them and love them because they need Jesus and quit prejudging people. And then let's, out of love and out of the grace that he's given us, make disciples for his glory. And like Paul, we've got to preserve the truth. We've got to hold up what matters most and push away the wolves the false brothers that would change the gospel of Jesus. And then lastly, we have to care for the poor. What's your attitude towards the poor? I've been asking myself that question this week. God, what's my attitude towards the poor? Is it your attitude? Is it your heart? Listen, this morning... If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, can I just say you're the poorest person in the room? If you don't know him, you are destitute. And he wants to give you himself. He wants to give you his sacrifice on the cross that you deserve, that I deserve. He wants to give you the riches of eternal life in him. And if you don't know him, would you make a choice today? Listen, it's not a hard choice. There's not a list of things I say, before you come up here to receive Jesus, make sure you do all these things. No, right where you are in this moment, you can say, God, I'm a sinner and I want you to forgive me. I believe that you died for me. Would you save my soul? And he will. With all my heart, I believe that he will.
through faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, that we know Jesus. Would you pray with me this morning? Father God, we thank you so much for your grace. Thank you so much for this letter to the Galatians that's also to us, God, that we can learn what salvation really is. What does it take to be saved, God? It, just faith that you have paid this price for us. Just to trust in you, Lord, to believe in you, to confess with our mouths, Lord, to believe in our hearts. We don't bring anything else. God, if there's somebody here this morning, I don't care if they're an 8-year-old or an 82-year-old, it doesn't matter, Lord. You don't see that. It doesn't matter to you, Lord. You want to know their soul. You want to know them. God, I pray if we've been trusting on, on our religiosity, we've been trusting on our church attendance, we've been trusting anything other than grace in Jesus alone, it's not salvation. So, Lord, if there's anybody here that needs to admit, needs to proclaim this gospel of Jesus, say, Lord, I want to be saved. Would you help them to do that today? Would you do that today, God? You were willing to take on the form of humanity, the form of a servant, to be made poor so that we might be made rich in the things of God. Lord, would you move in this place? Would you challenge our hearts on anything that you've uh, spoken to us today through your word? Would you give us the courage, oh God, to stand for the things that matter in life, to know you, to love you, to live for you? And God, would you truly change our hearts for the poor? Help us to have your eyes to see them, your heart to love them, and God, help us to give sacrificially to win them to serve them because when we serve them Lord you say in Matthew 25 we serve you we do it unto you thank you Lord for your goodness and your grace continue to teach us in the freedom that we have in you and to have the faith Lord God to believe the truth of this grace and this gospel we pray it in Jesus precious and perfect name Amen